My father's favorite poster said, I'd rather be rich and happy than poor and sick. Who wouldn't rather be rich and happy than poor and sick? In a similar way, we want big results in life's opportunities from an easy effort. Who doesn't want something for nothing? But that happens only in myths. You know the feeling. You know what you should do but lack the desire to do it. Sometimes you make a half-hearted attempt but dislike the results. Of course you don't like the outcomes. Anything worth trying deserves wholehearted effort. Sometimes, though, a good reputation can hide half-hearted commitment. But eventually, the lack of full commitment produces unacceptable results and tarnishes a sterling reputation. This same truth applies to Christianity, too. Thomas Paine said many years ago, Reputation is what people think of you. Character is what God and angels know about us. Long before a tarnished reputation becomes apparent, God sees the incomplete works produced by half-hearted Christianity. Jesus identified members of a first-century Christian assembly in the city of Sardis that exhibited an acceptable reputation but performed half-hearted works. Around 70 A.D., Christ wrote a letter through the Apostle John to the leaders and members of the Sardis congregation. Before we examine the story of these believers in Christ, I will give you some information on Sardis and its Christian congregation. The New Unger's Bible Handbook tells us that Sardis sat in the southwest corner of Asia. That country is now known as Turkey. It became a city of great wealth. Their wealth came from textiles and jewelry. According to Acts 18 and 19, Paul and his friends from Ephesus probably formed the Christian assembly at Sardis while he ministered in Ephesus. The church in Sardis developed a great reputation, which Christ observed. He sent a letter to them and the leadership in this congregation commenting on their prestige. We find it recorded in Revelation 3 verses 1 to 6. I'll take just a moment and read those verses so you have some notion of what the text says. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What does this letter communicate to the believers in Sardis? In verse number 1, Jesus described himself to these believers, and he said it in this fashion. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It sounds like Christ talked of seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That is not what it means. According to A.T. Robertson, noted biblical scholar, the number seven holds a unique meaning in the Bible. It is associated with completeness and fullness. Therefore, in this instance, it describes the fullness and completeness of one Holy Spirit who self-existed from all eternity. Then Jesus also mentions in verse 1 that he holds seven stars. The stars represent the spiritual leaders in the various churches in Asia, as mentioned in Revelation 1.20. The seven stars exemplify the angels, or pastors, of the local churches. In this way, Christ described his sovereignty over the spiritual leader in the Sardis congregation. In his sovereign control of all things, Christ said that he holds in his hands the Holy Spirit in his fullness, as well as the local pastor or spiritual leader of the church in Sardis. Further, Christ told the Christians at Sardis in verse number 1, he made this statement, I know. In this simple statement, Jesus told these believers of his knowledge of their works. How did he know? He possesses omniscience and omnipresence. Therefore, he knew their existence and their works, whether good or bad. He knew how they treated one another. He knew their behavior towards people outside the congregation. He knew their petty disagreements and arguments between each other. He knew their lack of commitment to him despite appearances. His omnipresence gave him insight into all things, including not just their works, but also even their thoughts. These short statements reveal significant features of Christ and his nature, his sovereignty over all things, his omniscience or knowledge of all things, and his presence everywhere, commonly called omnipresence. The last statement of Jesus in Revelation 3 also introduces his rebuke of the believers in Sardis. They possessed a sterling reputation in the city. People spoke well of them. Their reputation described them in this verse as alive. Perhaps their worship included lively music. Maybe they even called themselves an alive congregation. But Jesus did not see things that way among them. They claimed to follow Christ, yet he described them in verse number 1 as dead. He saw things in their lives about to die. They claimed to base their lives upon foundational beliefs, but they exhibited dead orthodoxy. Their inner lives did not show deadness and outward actions. Jesus noted their hypocritical attitudes toward each other and outsiders. In addition, Jesus noted in verse number 2 that he did not find their works perfect before God. 
This describes half-hearted effort. The believers in Sardis did not live wholehearted lives toward God. Their imperfect, half-hearted effort, or described in the verse as works, did not please Christ. He demands the whole heart and lives fully committed to him. In his rebuke of these believers, Christ displayed additional attributes of his nature. God the Father appointed Christ the judge. So he judged the members of the church in this Sardis for their half-hearted works. His love and holiness compelled them to correct their sin. He suffered long with them, but now he demanded a change in their lives to true holiness. The third part of this narrative concerns repentance from disobedience and half-hearted Christianity. In verse 3, Jesus told them to remember the teachings they received from God through their founder, Paul, and other messengers. Paul's teachings emphasized Christ and his indwelling by the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 3, 13-14, Paul states that he took no pride in his position or his miraculous ministry. He was never satisfied with himself, nor content to hold the line. He pressed forward to receive the mark of Christ's approval. Further, in Romans chapter 15, verses 17 to 19, Paul wrote a personal testimony where he gave praise for what the Holy Spirit did through him by word and deed, mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul resisted the temptation to pride which his letters prove. Some of the professing believers in Sardis failed these lessons. They rested on their reputation for good works, not realizing their slump in faithfulness to God. They had become dead, lacking true spirituality and liveliness in the Holy Spirit. Jesus convicted them of their sinfulness and demanded repentance for their half-hearted Christianity. Their repentance required a complete life change from their sinful behavior to fully follow Christ, from half-hearted behavior to wholehearted works. Jesus demanded nothing less than wholehearted obedience and continuous growth in godliness. In grace and mercy, Jesus warned them of impending judgment with an or-else condition He told them to repent or else he would come to them in judgment at an unknown time, a surprise visit. In the first part of this letter to believers in Sardis, Christ reminded them of his sovereignty over all things, which included his right to punish sinfulness and to demand repentance and growth in godliness. The half-hearted Christianity practiced by the Sardis congregation would bring judgment of God upon them, if they did not repent. In spite of Christ's description of their woeful condition, he did praise some of the congregation for their godliness, as revealed in verse number 4. In full display of his personal involvement with the lives of his children, he saw those who had not defiled their lives and who had practiced wholehearted works and promised them a gift. These intentional believers would walk with Christ in white garments, 
he called them worthy of this honor. Unlike the half-hearted believers in the Sardis congregation, Christ would honor these wholehearted Christians. Jesus' omniscience identified these few true believers, and he showered his grace and goodness upon them. Jesus promised a reward to two different groups of people. He identified the undefiled among them, as shown in verse number 4. These few members exhibited wholehearted lives in following Christ. Unlike the other members, they lived up to their reputation with whole, complete works before God. Because Christ found them worthy, he promised them that they would walk with him in white garments, a picture of their holiness in the New Jerusalem. Jesus challenged the defiled to repent and to overcome their imperfect works. If they repented and kept Christ's works unto the end, they too would walk with him in white garments, as promised in verse number 5. Further, he would not blot out their names from the book of life, and he would confess them before his Father and the heavenly hosts. What a display of Christ's goodness toward these believers in Sardis. In faithfulness to his gracious promises to believers, he granted the undefiled the guarantee of future life with him in holiness. Although he warned the defiled of their justified pending judgment, which as the judge of mankind he could give, in mercy and grace he offered them the opportunity to repent and a reward if they set things right before him. You probably ask your question about this time. Why did Jesus send this letter to the Sardis congregation? The five parts of the letter identify particular reasons for the letter. In it, he confirmed his nature as reverberated throughout Scripture. Specifically, he displayed nine facets of his character to them. His sovereignty, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his faithfulness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, and that he is a personal, intimate God. In mercy and grace, Christ rebuked them for their sinful behavior. They performed imperfect works before him. He convicted them of their sin, telling them he knew of it and did not accept their faulty actions. He demanded holiness and wholehearted obedience. Because of their sin, Jesus required repentance from it. This requirement did not surprise the believers in Sardis. Examples of God's demand of repentance from sin filled their scriptures, that is, what we would call the Old Testament. They knew the stories of Israel's rebellions as recorded in the book of Judges, the frequent revolts from the kings, and David's classic lament in Psalm 51, over his sin with Bathsheba. Along with his demand, Christ included an or else to warn them of the seriousness of their sin and his demand. All was not lost in this congregation, however. Some of them had not defiled themselves along with the others. These saints received Christ's acknowledgement and a promised reward for their upright behavior. 
His comfort and encouragement to them gladdened their hearts and motivated the undefiled to repent. The promised rewards from Christ confirmed his promises enumerated in Scripture for those who love and obey him. Given the difficult times in which they lived, these guarantees comforted and reassured the believers in Sardis to remain faithful to Jesus even in trials. In the end, Christ's letter confirmed that he does not judge people on their reputation. He demands the fruit of a Christ-like life. Now I'm sure by this time you have another question. What correlation does this have to you and me? Everything true then is true now. Christ's judgment against half-hearted members in the Sardis congregation warns us of that same clear and present danger in our day. Where has reliance upon a favorable reputation gripped you? Has your profession of faith in Christ produced apathy and a half-hearted obedience? To what extent does dead orthodoxy describe you? Have you bought the lie that the way to win the culture is to adapt to it instead of standing against it in its evil practices? I remind you of Christ's commands to the believers in Sardis. Remember the truths of Scripture and their application for your life. Repent of your apathy, disobedience, and half-hearted obedience. Rely upon the Holy Spirit who convicts you of sin to correct and to conform you to the image of Christ. Perhaps you belong to the undefiled as some of those in Sardis. Praise God for your faithfulness. Encourage yourself with the promises Christ gave to them. A great reward awaits you too as the one who promises also faithfully delivers. Perhaps you make no claim to faith in Christ. In fact, you do not even believe upon Christ. You have no interest in God or His Son, Jesus Christ. You live your life in enmity to God and to Jesus, His Son. Pastor Charles Shelton identified several questions for unbelievers. One of them fits this discussion, and here's the question. How can I constrain you to seek light when you have no knowledge of your spiritual darkness? Hear God's word to you today. When Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit in Eden, their natures became sinful and then passed on to all their offspring. Every person born after them inherits their original sin nature. As they hid themselves from God in the garden, so you and I naturally separate from him. In fact, a gulf separates all persons from God because of their sinful natures. That sinful nature enslaves us to sin, rendering us dead, spiritually dead, in our trespasses and sins, helpless and uninterested in breaking our bondage to sin. Our sinful natures render us slaves to sin, enemies of God, separated from Him, helpless to bridge the chasm, and under God's condemnation for our sin. Our sinfulness and helplessness identifies our need of divine life 
to intervene on our behalf. God graciously provided that divine life for sinners like you and me, and the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. God sent his Son, Jesus, to become the sacrifice by which sinners can reconcile with God. Jesus set aside his form with God and took the form of a servant and became incarnate in human flesh by his supernatural conception in the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life in complete obedience to God's law and the commandments of his Heavenly Father. The life that he lived, we could not live. The life that he lived qualified him for the death that he died. He died a death that we could not die. Jesus took upon himself the sins of people like you and me and offered himself up to God the Father as the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of people like you and me. His sacrifice paid the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sinfulness, and his Father accepted his sacrifice for sinners. He rose from his grave on the third day from his death on the cross, and after forty days ascended into heaven to the presence of his Father. In his resurrection, Jesus overcame sin and death and destroyed the wicked works of the devil. At Christ's intercession, God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to give to sinners the life that Christ obtained in his life, death, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit regenerates sinners, giving them new life from above commonly called being born again. To those regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the born-again ones, the Spirit enables them to see their need of a Savior, causes them to turn from their sins, and gives them the faith to cast their trust upon Christ's provision for them as their Savior. They experience forgiveness and pardon for their sins, which God will never charge against them. One of my last questions now is how must you respond? If you presently identify as defiled and a half-hearted Christian like those in Sardis, I pray that you will repent of your sin and renew complete obedience to Christ's demands. He will forgive your sin, renew fellowship with you, and enable you to follow him faithfully. If you meet the qualifications of the undefiled, like those in Sardis, I rejoice with you for your obedience to Jesus. I pray that you will manifest himself to you in clear, glorious, life-changing ways and enable you to continue in your walk of faithful obedience to Christ. For those who have no present faith in Christ, you remain at enmity with God, live under his condemnation and need a Savior to redeem you from your bondage to sin and to reconcile you to God. He has provided one for sinners like you in the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty that sinners like you deserve to pay to a just and holy God. I ask the Holy Spirit to come to you today to give you that new life from above, enable you to turn in repentance from your sin, and to furnish you with the faith to trust Christ, the Savior of sinners, as your own Savior. 
You may think to wait for another day, perhaps a better day. We are not promised tomorrow, nor a better time than now. I ask the Holy Spirit to come to you today, to give to you this new life, and to move you to turn from your sin and to call upon Christ today for repentance and faith in Him.